today we're here with Naval from AngelList, and um, I don't know if I've ever said this before, but this is probably the interview I've most been looking forward to do because I think Naval is um, one of the most fascinating entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley, and I'm incredibly honoured that you're here to, to talk. So, Naval, thank you. Yeah, thank you. It's very kind of you. It's a hard act to follow, but we'll try. <laughs> Can you tell me, um, tell us a little bit about your background? I'm, I, I'm guessing from your name that you're Indian. Yeah, I was born in India, uh, moved to New York with my family when I was nine, uh, grew up in New York City, uh, went to Dartmouth, studied computer science and economics, and basically didn't do as well at physics, which is what I really wanted to do. Um, came out and started getting into the technology business when the web was still very nascent. Um, started a couple of companies, including Opinions, which went public as part of Shopping.com back in the day, which was kind of Yelp before Yelp, um, and then did a few other companies in the middle. Um, started investing uh, for a little while, just doing angel investing, uh, have a couple of successful investments and a lot of failed ones. Um, and then after that, I uh, decided the whole investing market was very inefficient and people kept asking me for advice on it. So I was co-authoring uh, a blog uh, called Venture Hacks with my co-founder, Nibby. And after a while, we said, rather than just writing about it, let's actually help people uh, through a product. Um, and so we created what became AngelList. Uh, and uh, now it's the largest online network of startups and investors where we match up startups for fundraising and for talent and for a few other things that we're rolling out. Okay. Um, so why don't we backtrack a little bit because um, something that's interesting to me is that you're also the uh, founder of ePinions. Mm -hmm. So you, you've ridden the, the first dot-com wave and, and now riding the second one. Yeah. Um, I'm a founder of a couple of companies, definitely been through the whole dot-com wave before and uh, there's a lot of similarities and a lot of differences. Uh, you know, There's some hype this time, nowhere near as much as last time. There's a lot of capital being allocated uh, although, again, not as much as last time and probably much more efficiently than last time. Uh, and the businesses that are being built today are sort of rhyme with the businesses of 10, 15 years ago, except these ones are addressing customer bases that are literally 10 or 100 times larger. Um, but the competition is now fierce and intense because it's so easy to start a company, uh, although it's still no easier to build one, uh, probably harder to build one. Um, so it, there, there are parallels and there are differences, and it's kind of interesting to watch it all happen again. What happened with um, – actually, because I was in Silicon Valley during the first dot-com wave, I worked at Oracle with uh, Sal Khan, mm -hmm. uh, who now does Khan Academy. Yep. And he stayed in the valley and I left, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm happy about having, having, having left. Um, <coughs> you, when you did opinions, like that worked uh, pretty well. You built um, – uh, a moderately important company, you know, by now, 10, 10 or 15 years later. Um, but you ran into some issues with the investors. Yeah, you know, I don't really talk about those anymore. First of all, it's water under the bridge. Uh, secondly, we finally, we had a lawsuit in the settlement. Uh, as part of that settlement, I don't talk about it. Um, but it's a matter of public record. And, and, you know, it also led to the creation of Venture Hacks, which then led to the creation of AngelList. So, these kinds of experiences make you who you are. Um, back in that time, uh, the whole industry was much more opaque. So when you signed a term sheet, you were signing up to all kinds of things that you didn't really understand, and they were often very lopsided in the investor's favor. Um, and now things have gotten a lot more standardized with Series C and convertible notes and white commentator notes and so on and so forth. Um, and they've become a lot more entrepreneur-friendly. You could even argue in some cases they've become too uh, entrepreneur-friendly. Um, but the, the environment has changed a lot since then. Mm. 
And that's what's interesting. I mean, people sometimes think that businesses are always built through fluffy, save-the-world type visions, but in fact, sometimes it is like, hey, there's a problem here and we want to do something about it. Yeah, you know, it's it's a lot of it's sausage making. Yeah. <laughs> I think, uh, and, and the the fluffy save the world visions. Uh, sometimes they are the founding basis for the business. Sometimes they uh, emerge as you build a business, and sometimes they're tacked on afterwards for a good story. Uh, there there is no single formula to building a business. Um, if there were a single formula, we would have systematized it, and it would be straightforward, and all the returns would be gone because we could do it all the time. But by definition, uh, technology is a set of things that don't quite work yet. Startup businesses are trying to solve the things that are still broken. And so there is no single path to fixing them. Um, there, are, uh, there are probably more don'ts than do's. Um, and, though, and even those don'ts are just heuristics that can change depending on the environment. Uh, so that's what makes it tough and interesting, but it's also what makes it lucrative. Uh, if I can train you absolutely how to do something, then I can replace you. And if I can replace you, I don't have to pay you much. Uh, so there's no value to it. So I think entrepreneurship, by definition, uh, attacks the boundary cases uh, where uh, advances human knowledge and creation, learning at the edge. Um, and so it's always solving the hard problems, so it can never be automated. Hmm. That's a smart way to think about it. Um, in terms of what you've done with AngelList, uh, tell me if I'm wrong, and I'm, I'm going to try not to be too fluffy here, but it, it seems to me that you have um, commoditized a large percentage of, uh, at least on the, the, the low end with seed funding, um, of investing worldwide and made it much more transparent. We still need lead investors, um, but you've taken potentially one of the most critical things from Silicon Valley and flattened it and put it on the web using uh, Facebook-style publishing of the signaling that goes on. And you've done it in a way that is to everybody's incentive. Does that sound accurate? Yeah. I mean, it's still a little hard to describe because we, we're doing so many things and some work and some don't. Uh, I would put it more as, uh, you know, we're, we're Match.com for startups and entrepreneurs and, and investors and talent. Um, and uh, we're definitely a force for transparency and meritocracy. Um, it doesn't quite lead to commoditization because just as the companies now have more investors to choose from, the investors have more companies to choose from. Um, and generally, investors are scarcer than companies, so if anything, it might actually shift some of the power more in the investor's favor for an experienced investor. Um, that said, it really gives an opportunity um, for investors who are out of market, say not in Silicon Valley, or for entrepreneurs who are out of market, um, but have merit or money to contribute um, to basically connect. So although we do a pretty good job connecting companies in Silicon Valley to other Silicon Valley investors, um, where we really shine is connecting out-of-market investors or out-of-market companies to in-market investors and companies. Hmm. Okay. And it's um, a work in progress. You know, it's, we've only been at it three years. It's a 10-year mission. It'll take us a long time to nail it. And I noticed on your site you're doing um, six years of uh, options for people to come and work with you. So you, you really want the team to stick around through the, the whole period. Yeah, I'd do 10 if it was possible, but it's very hard to hire more the people with 10 <laughs> You years. have to work with us until you die. Is that kind of what you want to do? <laughs> yeah. Until you die or we die. <laughs> yeah, you know, look, it's you, you spend a... Um, you spend a lot of your career uh, wandering. And I think uh, you know, the smartest and most interesting and best people are always to some extent wandering. Um, 
but um, at some point you figure out what it is that you want to do, and it takes a while. It's like figuring out who you want to be with, or where you want to live, or you know how you want to live your life. And when you figure it out, you just want to do that forever, um, and then you start thinking very long term, and these things like six-year, ten-year investing schedules show up. Not for everyone, but uh, I, I find it immensely rewarding. Hmm. And so the way this started then was um, through email, right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, so we started, it's called Angel List because it's an email list. Uh, we actually had two lists. There was Angel List and Startup List. Um, and uh, we ended up consolidating under the Angel List brand. But it started as just uh, a woofoo form and a MailChimp mailing list. And so you got some traction on those, and then you went to a website. That's right. We, we started building out the website as the deal flow volume became overwhelming, uh, and as we realized that we were onto something here, and that there was a lot of intelligent things to be done with the data and structuring it and making it more community-based. And how did people – because I, I mean, I, I've never raised money. I'm not in, I haven't been in that world. I've always been in the world where we just have to make money however we can, and you know, <laughs> we find ways to do that without funding. Um, how did you? I mean, I've, I, I mean, I've been reading venture hacks since a long time, but I didn't really notice places to sign up for for um, to join lists for that stuff. Like, how were you uh, aggregating people back then, and then how were you? Uh, how did yeah, you get venture hacks. Venture hacks just became popular as a blog. Um, we uh, for a while. I don't know if this is true anymore, but for a while, we're the number two venture related blog behind Fred Wilson's AVC. Um, so we just had a big readership. Um, but at some point, we're going in circles, writing about the same things over and over. How many times can you explain liquidation preference, for example? Um, and a lot of the old lessons still apply. So we basically just launched it on Venture Hacks. So we wrote a blog post. We explained to people, this is what we're doing. Come sign up if you're interested. And it just sort of took off from there. Uh, email is a great way to prototype a business. Um, you can very quickly figure out if there's demand. You can stay in touch with your users very easily. Um, and uh, anyway, so... Uh, you know, it, it's a great way to start out. Hmm. So you started with the blog. You, the blog got a lot of traffic. Uh, you used that traffic then and you, you advertised it in a blog post to an email list. The email list got traction. That then led you to building out a proper site. That's right. Hmm. It's a good order of operations. Yeah. Um, one of the things that is, is really fascinating to me uh, is that you seem to be doing things in a way that I, I don't seem to see as much in the Valley, and I'm, you know, I'm, tell me if I'm wrong on this, but it, it still seems like a lot of what happens in the Valley is about building out these massive teams of, of lots of people. Um, we have a mutual friend who also lives uh, where I used to live in the Dominican Republic, um, mm -hmm. and he's pretty good at running things remotely, and it sounds like you guys have worked together and... Um, I'm curious as to the, the sort of influence that he's had on how you run teams and, and what, your, what your thinking is there. Yeah, so Ivko uh, Maximovich, who you're referring to, he was, uh, I think you interviewed him before. Um, he was hugely, hugely influential to me. Uh, I met Ivko online, and it sounds like a dating site, but I met Ivko online and we had a couple of chats and he was uh, a, a CTO at a company that I ended up merging a company with and running for a while. And he worked out of the Dominican Republic. And here was a self-taught uh, Serbian hacker who dropped out of school who was one of the most productive human beings I'd ever met. Um, and he also uh, has built his entire view of the world almost in isolation. So he's had to rediscover a lot of the principles that most of us gather as heuristics from other people around us. 
um, to the point where uh, early on in our conversations, I realized that whenever I would use any complex word in our IM sessions, he would basically go to Google image search and type that word in and use the resulting images to get a sense of what feeling I was trying to convey, um, which I thought was fascinating. Um, so Ivko is this complete creature of the web, and he's essentially been raised on the web. Uh, and as such, he doesn't have any of the... Um, uh, he, he doesn't any, have any of the bad habits or any of the legacy thinking that the rest of us have because we've been raised in much more uh, social societies and with uh, a highly structured edu formal education. Um, so Ivko would challenge every assumption. One of those assumptions was how many people do you really need to build a company? Uh, and I think he's absolutely right about this. I think that the leverage available to a modern programmer is just immense. Uh, it's probably a hundred to a thousand x of the leverage available to uh, a normal human uh, who doesn't code just because of all these servers who are working all night for you. The, uh, by servers, I mean the, the machine sitting in the data center. Um, same thing with the designer where you're basically creating media which is leveraged and spread out to the rest of the planet with no additional effort on your own to replicate. Um, and now with labor communities like Elance and uh, Craigslist and Mechanical Turk um, online and Wikipedia, um, you can even outsource a lot of the job to your users um, or to these uh, uh, quick labor communities. Um, and then finally, you have marketing channels like Twitter and Facebook. So the reality is, I don't think it takes 100 people or thousands of people to build a billion dollar business anymore. I think it's absolutely possible to do it with dozens or even single digit people. Uh, Instagram was a, a, a great precursor in that sense that yes, they did not monetize, but I think they could have outsourced monetization um, and still created billions of dollars worth of value. Um, so I think people uh, build large companies and hire lots of people for, for, for a couple of reasons, some good, some not so good. Sometimes you just need it kind of business you're in. Like for example, Uber you know, has a lot of operations would just need a lot of people on the ground. Um, sometimes you do it because your VCs have given you a lot of money and it's easy and you spend it. Sometimes you do it because you're in a foot race and so you just decide, I can't automate that right now. I need to get there first. I'm just going to hire people and plug the gap. And I think that's dangerous because someone who may be behind you but spends a little bit more time automating it will eventually blow past you as they scale up. Um, and I think a lot of times people do it just because it seems like the comfortable and safe thing to do. But the reality is I, I think the great businesses are built by small, small commando teams. Uh, and I think they can leverage themselves much, much further than they used to. So uh, in the next decade, uh, I think we're going to see lots of billion-dollar businesses built with incredibly small teams, shockingly small teams, um, that are going to cost people to reconsider the entire uh, late-stage venture investment model. When I, I'm, I'm still uh, deciding what I'm going to do as my next stage because I've not been in, active in business for the last few years. Um, and when I've been looking around at uh, what I want to do or who I want to be, it's, it's you. <laughs> you're doing it because you're disrupting one of the biggest industries and you have a team, I guess, of, of 13 people, right? Yeah, it's actually probably closer to 11 or 12 when you really get right? when you when you count out the contractors and stuff. Uh, you know, there's uh, our, our model here is uh, we we try and hire uh, engineers and designers, full stack people. Um, they they uh, run as one man startups internally, so they own the their entire product, including the customer service and the um, and the uh, uh, sales of it. And that's something Eveco taught me as well. Um, and they. Uh, they're responsible. And if they can't handle that level of responsibility, that's fine. Then switch away and find someone who does. Um, but it's generally not actually that much of a team-oriented culture. Uh, so that's the sacrifice. 
Um, teams form organically, but uh, you can very easily at AngelList work in complete isolation as long as you're productive and ship stuff, we don't care. And what we optimize for is if we keep the number of nodes small, the amount of communication is uh, uh, communication overhead is very low, the accountability is very high, we can move very quickly, we can innovate very quickly, we can pivot very quickly, um, and that just gives us the flexibility that I find that larger companies just lack. And we're in an innovation business, uh, and we have no illusions that you know we're the leaders or anything like that. It is always going to be changed in this business, and so we're always rolling out new product, trying new things. Uh, I, I would argue we ship more code than any other startup that I know, uh, and we only have five people, you know, with the title engineer internally. Um, but those people are incredibly productive. They're essentially all former CTOs or could be CTOs of their own company. Um, they're very, very independent. Uh, they have a lot of responsibility. And they don't have to sit in meetings or explain to other people what they're doing all the time. And, and sometimes they screw up. Sometimes they make mistakes. Uh, the other day, you know, we sent out five emails for every one that we were supposed to to a certain batch of people and annoyed them. And that's just the price you pay. You have to be willing to tolerate some failure and, and, and making of mistakes uh, if you truly want to have an innovative culture. Um, so we, we try really hard to have a small commando team um, to the point where we will leave money on the table. Uh, we will leave success on the table. Uh, we will give up uh, on owning verticals and being the winner at certain things in exchange for maintaining our innovation and flexibility. I've, I saw a post where you said one time that uh, you're not management isn't your strength. Um, I'm terrible at it. I hear it. <laughs> um, and I'm I'm not famous for being a strong manager either. Um, <laughs> And so what your, I guess what a part of your style of management is to get really good people and have them working, would I, could I say it directly with the, the, the user in some manner so that they end up understanding the user profile fairly well and can start to make their, the right Absolutely. decisions? Absolutely. Yeah, they have to work directly with the user and then they also have to be responsible for the customer service. So if they're engineers, they're going to automate away all the bugs themselves so they don't have to deal with all the customer service issues. And by the way, not everyone can work in this regard. I would say half the people that have failed to work out with us have been incredibly talented and good people and would have been amazing in different environments. Um, but they just can't kind of work in our culture because um, it's, it's very unique and very idiosyncratic. It's a fine balance of individualism and team. So to give you an example, like Ivko, who's just awesome, uh, can't work in our culture because he's too individualistic. <laughs> I don't think Ivko can work in a company beyond three people, uh, but it's going to be an amazing <laughs> company. But most people are the opposite, where they need some hierarchy, they need some management, they need some coordination. Uh, and so most people can't work in a company that is this dedicated to staying small and lean. Um, so most people fail out in that regard. Um, so it does end up being very, very idiosyncratic, but it, it really works well for us. Uh, and, and to the extent that I don't like management, first of all, I don't enjoy it. I just, you know, yeah, maybe I could become good at it, but why? Um, I don't want to tell people what to do. If you tell people what to do, then when you're no longer in the room, um, they freeze up. They don't do anything. They wait for you to come back and tell them what to do. And the good people just don't want to be managed that way. Good people want to be measured on output. They want to have flexibility and freedom, and you want to be able to trust them. So if you have really, really smart people, and you have to be, uh, you know, you have to be a jerk about that. You have to make sure you only have people you truly respect and you trust their judgment when you're not in the room. Um, and those kinds of people want to be very independent. And, and my model in this case would be companies like 
uh, Valve, where Gabe Newell uh, very famously has a company of hundreds of people who run completely independently and there's no hierarchy. Um, or Gore Technologies, which uh, splits its company into many units every time they hit the 200-person mark. Um, and I'm sure there are other cases, but the, or if you look at like a hedge fund or a VC fund, the way they're structured, the partners are extremely independent. Um, so we want to treat our people the same way. I don't know, Naval. I'm, I'm, I'm hearing that you don't have enough empathy here, and I think we're going to have to put you in empathy school for a while. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, wouldn't, I would not want somebody to be in a job uh, that I wouldn't want to do. Mm. And I wouldn't want somebody to have to... Uh, uh, you know, take orders or behave or respond in a way that I myself wouldn't do. And I'm very rebellious and independent. I think every formal job that I ever had, I ended up quitting in a huff because somebody <laughs> told me what to do. Um, so, you know, given that, I can't, I can't inflict that on other people. No, I, I'm with you. Um, and so I've, I've been looking at your uh, Twitter list because you, you list all of your employees on Twitter and it seems like you do have most of them local in the Bay Area, but not all. Uh, they're actually all local now. Um, we did have two in New York for a while. Um, it just became too hard to do the coordination. Um, and uh, our uh, our chief scientist, who actually uh, Ipko and I both used to work with, a uh, brilliant uh, guy uh, who's Serbian. Uh, Ipko he, found that guy. He told me about him, and he said he's like the best guy he's ever found. He's the best guy I've ever found, yeah. He's, <laughs> he's a unicorn. He's just unbelievable. He He is the only true genius I've ever met up close. Uh, you know, you read about them, and then they're so-called self-styled geniuses, and then they're people who are geniuses just because they're successful or, you know, they got some award. But when, when you're in the presence of a real genius, you know it, and he is the only true genius I've encountered up close. What, what uh, is it that makes him so good? Uh, well, he doesn't talk much, so it takes a little while to figure it out, but he's incredibly deep and thoughtful. Um, and, uh, you know, when he says something, it's usually correct. Um, and uh, he started out doing back-end code for us because we... Uh, wrongly assumed or believed that he did not have front-end capability. Um, and today he does everything for us. I think he's shipped, uh, you know, just a tremendous amount of code. He's had a lot of learning. He's not formally trained, so, you know, it's not always the cleanest code. Um, but he's getting better at that. But he, he's just very, very, very smart. Yeah, Yvko found him originally. Um, uh, I mean, we all kind of found him together, but Yvko sort of helped pull him out of the noise. Um, and he used to be in Serbia, but he has now moved here. Mm, that's great. Um, you know, it just takes a small number of truly great people to build a company. And so uh, I consider us lucky if we find one of those people every six months. Um, and, uh, you know, if you find one every three months, then, then wow, that's great. And how do you, so how do you find people? I guess now you have enough of a profile that they come, they come knocking on your door. Yeah, you know, it's really hard. Um, originally, we reached out through every channel that we had and every person that we knew and, you know, just begged, pleaded, cajoled, <laughs> sweet-talked your way into it. Uh, now, obviously, we have a higher profile. But even then, you know, people look at AngelList. It's not like Square or Pinterest or something like that where the growth is not linear. It's headed on its way to an IPO and it's a quick cash out. Um, and Silicon Valley is an intense recruiting environment, so it's very difficult. Um, to be honest, the, you know, the people we've picked up in the last uh, year, they've all come through Angelus Talent, so we use our own product, um, and there's some great uh, people on there. Uh, most of the people who end up joining us are ones who have already started their own company, and it has failed or not gone the way they wanted to, so they realize how difficult startups are. They want to learn how to build a startup, and they want to learn kind of what the uh, inside baseball around recruiting and fundraising with a startup is. 
Um, there are former entrepreneurs or currently entrepreneurs, so they're attracted to the one-man startup concept. Um, and, and probably the thing that closed the deal for them is they come in and they meet the rest of the team and they're like, wow, I want to be in a team where I'm struggling to keep up as opposed to in a team where I'm obviously one of the best people. Uh, in fact, our last engineer who joined us, he had a very compelling offer from a, uh, another company. And uh, he said he joined us because he said he felt like he would have been the best person at that company. And he felt like he'd be the worst person at AngelList. So he said, that's why I want to do it. I want to get better. And so um, how, does, how does your office environment work? I mean, do you all show up in the morning at 9 o'clock and check out at 5? Or are, you, you know, are the guys there working until 3 a.m. every night? Like, how does that go? Uh, I don't, we're not the 3 a.m. crowd. Uh, we're very output-driven, so it's very independent. I'd say most people work 50 to 60 hours a week. Um, they do it on their own schedule. So I think half the office still isn't in today um, and may not even come in. Uh, but every Monday we check in with uh, what we promised we'd do last week, what we actually got done, what we're going to do next. Um, so it's sort of a peer uh, meeting with a little bit of peer pressure, and we demo to each other what has happened. Um, and uh, we just run on that cadence. And, you know, yeah, do I wish people were 80 hours a week? Sure. Do I think it would make them more productive? No. Uh, my rational side knows it, uh, knows it wouldn't, even though my uh, animal hind brain still would like to see kind of more face time. Um, but, my, but my rational side knows that a really smart uh, knowledge worker, if you will, uh, only has really about four to six hours of productive time per day. Um, so they have to get into the zone. However they get in the zone is up to them, whether it's going to be at a cafe or after playing a game or, you know, uh, or just some people who have families just come in and just crank because their time is very limited. Um, so you can only measure people in output, not input, and, and that's kind of how we try and operate. Yeah, I mean, it's smart. And are you finding uh, are people in, in the Valley listening to you on, on these sorts of things, or are they just kind of still doing their own thing? I honestly don't care. <laughs> uh, you know, it's up to them. It's, it's different for everyone. I, it's funny. Uh, the the one place where I get a lot of pushback, I would say, is in the number of people needed. Um, and I think the reason for that is that there's a lot of people who have a strong incentive to argue that you need a lot of people to build a huge business. And this would include everything from later stage venture funds to uh, recruiters. Um, to the kinds of people who frankly only get hired or, or managers who only get hired into larger companies. So they're going to have a strong um, uh, incentive to argue that. You know, there's the Charlie Munger saying, whose bread I eat, his song I sing. Um, so in this case, you know, that that's where their bread comes from. So of course they're going to argue that. But I think the world is changing. I think we're headed towards an environment where, sure, the majority of people will still work for big companies, but we're going to have a million startups uh, in the world as opposed to 100,000. Um, and it'll be very common for, and most of them will be non-financed. They'll be just small businesses, but they'll be information tech-based small businesses where you roll out of bed in the morning and you get assigned your task by an Android phone and maybe it's in a bidding marketplace. You choose what you want to do. You get rid at the end of the day and you work for yourself. And that's the way it should be. I think that's the way human beings were evolved before agricultural industrialization came along. Uh, and aggregated us into hierarchical groups that had to work in unison. Um, but the computer and the internet and the, and the smartphone are incredibly democratizing tools. You do not need anyone's permission to open your laptop and build a business anymore. 
Um, and it's not like the printing press or the factory or the industrial revolution or steam engine where you needed capital and you needed labor and you needed, uh, you needed property rights and you need to amass all kinds of things. Look at Evco. Evco is the ultimate example. That guy's going to make a great living no matter what part of the planet he's on. He could be sitting on a beach with a laptop. He could be in a jungle. As long as he has a computer and internet connection, Evco is going to create things of value that the world wants. Um, and, and that's becoming more and more true. And even for people who don't code, um, you will be able to go online and provide you know, video con uh, services over a video conference. Maybe you'll do some design, or maybe you'll be an exec assistant online. Um, but I think the, you know, the coordination costs between companies are shrinking. The leverage for an individual through computers is increasing. Uh, and so just uh, basic economics close theorem means that the average uh, size of a firm should shrink down. Um, and, and that's the future. No matter how much people may be talking their own book, that's the future. Uh, <clears throat> I'm I'm basically an Ivco that doesn't code, but you know there's always ways to make money. Um, yeah, <laughs> I I don't I don't know if I fit back in in the real world, but that's a, that's another story. Um, <laughs> and it's interesting because we we look at the world today as how it's always been, but in fact, the the whole idea of a corporation at at, at, at any sort of scale only started with Standard Oil in like the 1890s or so, 18, maybe 1870s, um, and there wasn't even the law system built in place to be able to have a, a nationwide corporation. You had to, they had to string lots of uh, state corporations together, and it was all, it was actually basically illegal what they built until later on the laws got changed. Um, yeah, there, there are all these wacky rules that uh, talk about how companies operate, that, you know, treat them as a separate entity, and partnerships are a lot more natural. They feel a lot more human, but the idea of this C corp. Uh, as the U.S. tax code and structure and, and corporate laws define it, it's uh, you know it, it's obviously something unnatural. It does something great. It works. I'm a big believer in capitalism, so that's all good. But uh, I think fundamentally, people want to work for themselves, and they want to know who they're talking to and why. And uh, you know, at the end of the day, we're still highly social and tribal creatures. Um, we're evolved that way, no matter how much we may think we're past that. Um, and so I think we're just far more efficient and happy and effective in small groups rather than large groups. Even within a corporation, you break down very quickly into departments and then teams and then groups and, uh, and, and so on and so forth. So um, some interesting stuff you posted on Twitter a while ago was discussing the principal agent problem. Um, and I found that uh, really, really fascinating, and I, I started learning all about it. Um, and maybe this is a good chance for you to tell us about how some of your recruiting and some of your, your functions work on AngelList and how they all tie together. Yeah, so to me, the principal agent problem is probably the single most fundamental problem in microeconomics. Uh, I think if you do not understand the principal agent problem, you will not know how to navigate your way through the world um, if you want to build a successful company or even be successful in your dealings. And it's a very simple concept. Uh, Julius Caesar famously said, if you want it done, then go, and if not, then send. What he meant was if you want it done right, then you have to go yourself and do it, and if you don't want it done right, then send somebody else to do it. Um, what it boils down to is when you are the principal, when you are the owner, then you care and you will do a great job. And when you're the agent and you're doing it on somebody else's behalf, you're going to do a bad job. You just won't care. You'll optimize for yourself rather than for the principal's assets. Um, and this crops up in every aspect of life. Um, and you know, in building a business, the smaller the company, the more everyone feels like a principal, the less likely they'll feel like an agent, the better job they're going to do. Um, 
the more closely you can tie someone's compensation to exactly the value you're creating, the more you create, turn them into a principal and the less you turn them into an agent. Uh, bigger governments are less effective and less efficient than smaller governments uh, because there are more agents and less principals. Uh, you know, despite what Keynesians would have you believe, uh, a, a dollar spent by the government is generally wasted compared to a dollar spent by the private sector because now you have the ultimate agent, someone who sees the money rather than earned it, spending the money as opposed to someone who earned it and, and is trying to increase it. Um, so uh, you know, any big institution falls into that. Uh, when, when I do business deals, if I'm doing partnerships um, or even when I'm buying my own services, I would much rather go with smaller firms. Uh, if I go with a lawyer, I'd rather have a lawyer who owns his firm or has four lawyers in his firm than have one who has 50 because I want to deal with the principal, not with the agent. Um, and I think at some core fundamental level we understand this, we're attracted to principles and we all want to be principles, uh, but yet the news media and uh, you know, modern society uh, spends a lot of time brainwashing and mythologizing this idea of the agent, uh, that you need an agent and that the agent is important and the agent is knowledgeable. Uh, and frankly, at the end of the day, agents are middlemen, and society is full of them, uh, and I think you want to avoid them. So to, to the extent that AngelList works, um, we are not an agent. We always try and connect principles. So on the fundraising side, we connect startups directly to the investors. Uh, on the talent side, we connect the founder or the CEO of the company directly to the talent. Um, we do not allow middlemen recruiters on AngelList talent, which makes us very different from things like LinkedIn. Um, so there, you, do, you do not need a middleman. This is the internet. The internet hates information middlemen and ruthlessly removes them. Now, if you're creating actual value in some other way other than just providing information, uh, then people should pay you for that service, and that might be a useful service. But um, information agents are sort of the worst kinds of agents. Um. How far does this go, though? For example, Zynga was was run as as a, an organisation where they tried to have everybody very very tracked to their results for the company, and I, I guess in, in terms of hiring, that maybe didn't work out so well for them. Uh, you know, you can't point to a single uh, example like that because Zynga's uh, in a very difficult space. Uh, a lot of their fortune is controlled by what Facebook does. Uh, they also had a very idiosyncratic culture internally that was very, very hierarchical. Um, and, uh, you know, they're, they're managed very, very tightly the way Mark Pincus wants it to. So I, I don't think that the, um, I, I don't think the principal agent issue or what they did to mitigate it alone can explain much of anything. I think the, the thing to step back and look at and say, why is it that every time a company becomes big, it slows down, it stops innovating? It starts just working on protecting its existing revenue stream. And then some little startup that has 1,000 the resources and really has no right to come over and, and attack this big company, attacks the big company and kills it. Happens all the time. It, it is, I think the principal agent problem is literally what allows startups to exist. If agents were just as effective as principals, there would be no startups. IBM would have crushed. Microsoft, Microsoft would have crushed. Uh, uh, Google, Google would be crushing you know, every little company that shows up in every little market. Uh, Google would have crushed Facebook. Facebook would have crushed Instagram, uh, and so on and so forth. But it's the fact that a small number of people who are principals and are dedicated to, and to what they're doing really, really care, whereas the agents um, are too busy optimizing their lifestyle. They're not going to optimize for the company as a whole. So uh, an example of that would be uh, what Craigslist did in the advertising business, that they put consumers in touch with each other far more efficiently and effectively. And, uh, I mean, uh, maybe that isn't a good example. I'm not sure. 
It's a reasonable example. Uh, Craigslist has eliminated a lot of agents and middlemen. Uh, to the extent that agents and middlemen use Craigslist, they have to pay. They're essentially rate limited because they have to pay for the postings in the categories where there are a lot of agents like jobs and cars and, uh, and houses. Um, it, it's essentially as you democratize information, you uh, get rid of information middlemen. Uh, a clear example is your uh, real estate broker. Why the heck do they get 6%? <laughs> right? why, do, why do brokers and agents take 6% of this gigantic transaction? 90% of it is about information conveyance. Uh, some of it is legal. Some of it is habit. Uh, some of it is people don't want to take a risk with that big of a transaction. But I, I predict 20 years from now, there will be no job called real estate agent. Um, we should talk a little bit more about what AngelList actually does and some of the services you have on there. I don't want to lead you too far down the road of philosophy, um, because I mean we, we need to. I know there's a lot of interviews out there about there but about you, but we should at least get a little bit sure. more about what your site actually does and how that works. Um. <laughs> yeah, we have uh, 54,000 company profiles. Uh, these are startups that are out there uh, fundraising or recruiting on AngelList. Um, we have about 12,000 vetted candidates who are looking for. Uh, jobs. Most of them are developers, designers, product managers, former entrepreneurs. Um, we've got uh, 5,000 sophisticated investors who are looking to meet companies and invest in them. Uh, we've got another 10,000 accredited investors who are investing online, um, sort of you know putting checks uh, completely online, small checks, uh, into companies that have been vetted and have good lead investors. Uh, and then we have a, a few dozen incubators that are taking applications directly for their incubator programs on AngelList. So we've got a lot going on. Um, you can think of it as like a LinkedIn for the startup ecosystem, but it's highly transactional. So it's not so much driven by your social network, although that can be important for validation, um, but it's driven far more around merit-based transactions where people can browse all kinds of opportunities in the startup ecosystem and reach out and learn and connect with the people that they should for these high-value transactions. Um, and uh, you know, this is after three years of uh, after launch and basically two years after we started coding. So there's a lot more to go. Um, but we want to be the place, and I think we are the place, where you come to find investors and you come to find talent. Uh, and over time, we'll add more services. I think the, the Craigslist analogy is a good one, although we're far more, uh, I think, technically sophisticated, um, partially because we started much uh, later and partially just because I think, uh, you know, back in the day, the, the Craigslist problem was a little bit more low-hanging fruit. Uh, we're solving the harder problem of how to connect strangers for high-value transactions, not, not lower-value transactions, and for more business transactions, less consumer transactions. And so what you would say is that you know, we, we discussed the principal agent problem, so a key driver of, of your business philosophy is uh, reducing that as much as possible, and so the people coming to you are going to end up paying a lot less for market inefficiencies. Yeah, I mean, you'll be able to see the full range of options available to you, and we, we don't take a middleman fee or anything like that. So you'll you'll uh, be able to um, connect to the people that you you know you you need to connect to for your transaction, assuming that you're high quality enough and you send the right signal such that we give you permission to do it, because we do have to worry about spam and so on and so forth. Um, but yeah, it'll remove the market inefficiency of having to hop from coffee meeting to coffee meeting, find middlemen, slowly pitch them and convince them. Um, for a company that's in market, we can accelerate their financing or fundraising uh, or, uh, or uh, recruiting. And for a company that's out of market, we can turn it from impossible to possible. It's astounding what you've done. Where, where are you seeing in terms of international adoption how it's being used? Uh, you know, international is probably about a quarter of uh, the activity in Angels today, and it's increasing pretty rapidly. 
Um, it's uh, uh, we haven't really focused on it because the startup ecosystem in most international places is not yet deep enough, especially on the fundraising side. Um, that said, we're now starting to see a lot of activity in India and in uh, Europe, especially in London. Um, and we've gotten some companies funded in both places, as well as some talent recruited in both places. Um, so I think we're going to be uh, pretty big in both of those shortly. Um, we've done uh, a lot with Canadian companies. We've got a lot of Canadian companies funded by U.S.-based VCs. Uh, we've got a lot of New York companies funded by Silicon Valley-based investors. We recently had an Austin-based company funded by a Brussels-based VC on AngelList and a Silicon Valley-based company funded by a London-based VC. Um, so the cross-pollination is pretty incredible, and I think it's just increasing. Because money is everywhere, and it's chasing returns, and you know, with interest rates so low around the world, um, people want to get more into early stage. Uh, IPO markets aren't uh, as healthy, so companies go public later and later. Um, so people realize you need to get in at the private side to make uh, you know, the same kinds of returns. Um, but there's, and there's a lot of newcomers in the market. So um, we can facilitate a lot of that, although you, know, you have to be careful too because it's an easy way to lose money when you um, sort of get into an industry that you really don't understand. I mean, have you, have you disrupted all of Silicon Valley with this or a big piece of it? Uh, you know, I, I don't like the word disruption, to be honest. It implies that you're sort of breaking things. Uh, I think of it as making it more efficient, more transparent. Um, I think we're about halfway there in Silicon Valley. I still think we have more work to do. And, um, you, you, I mean, you, we've, we've discussed how you're working with your team and how you're funding them um, in, uh, in terms of stock. Um, where is the business model and how are you making money? I mean, one thing that I'm obviously pretty aware of in business is that there's, there can be a, a front end, which is what drives things on the front, and then there's a back end, which makes money. Now, your model obviously puts you in a pretty nice position to be able to invest in the right stuff. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's not how we're making money. We're actually not making money um, right now. Um, we uh, eventually do plan and monetize the talent side. We're not going to monetize the fundraising side. Uh, we don't want to create adverse selection. It's the engine that brings companies in, um, and it's also uh, you know uh, highly regulated space. So I don't think we're going to make uh, much of any money on the fundraising side, and we're sort of philosophically opposed to it. Um, but on the talent side today, people pay contingency recruiters twenty, thirty thousand dollars to recruit a high quality candidate. Um, so there's a lot of margin uh, there to play with. So I think eventually we will charge on the talent side. But we're not doing it right now. So will you become a, a kind of a Craigslist style model where there will be some th some services which drive adoption and then other stuff which uh, makes money? So Craigslist like jobs and housing and yeah so you sort of broke up there for a sec but I, I think I understood your question um, yeah I think it's very similar to a Craigslist style model where there will be most categories will be free and there are a few categories where we'll charge um, uh, but we'll only do it in categories where the value is clear there's no regulatory issue there's no adverse selection issue and hopefully it improves the user experience rather than makes it work so the story that was on the web is that you and Steve Jobs didn't like the crowdfunding laws so you just went off uh, Steve you and Steve um, was Steve from uh, AOL? Steve, Steve Case, yeah. So you and Steve Case didn't like the the crowdfunding laws, so you just like go to Washington and convince <laughs> them to change the law. Like, what, what yeah, actually not, happened there? Yeah, not quite. So Steve Case, I mean, has been working tirelessly on behalf of entrepreneurs in DC with no return to himself for a long time. Um, so he, you know, he's a he, he's a real hero in my book. Uh, he, you know, a lot of people talk about uh, giving. Uh, after they've been successful, but Steve really does it, and he does it with his time and his energy and his influence, um, rather than just writing a check, although I know he writes plenty of checks too. Um, so Steve's been out there passionately advocating 
Startup America and uh, crowdfunding and democratization of entrepreneurship. Um, we got involved because you know there are some very old laws in the books around that regulate um, how finders can introduce startups to companies. So we didn't really go there for crowdfunding, but we wanted to make sure that those kinds of things were addressed. Um, and uh, you know we worked at it for a while. We got petitions and we got influence from a lot of investors and startups who made the case. Uh, and then when the Jobs Act passed, there were a whole bunch of pieces in there. Everything from raising the 500 shareholder limit to crowdfunding to lifting the general solicitation ban um, to you know addressing issues about finders and online platforms. And all of that was folded in there. Um, so I, I give a lot more credit to Steve. I think we helped rally our community and we made sure that the you know the best thinking from Silicon Valley was in that bill um, but I give a ton of credit to Steve for for driving it before anybody else showed up and for sticking around after everybody else is gone he's still in DC and he's now working on startup visa um, I think he's really an unsung hero of Silicon Valley I mean there are, there are a lot of big names in Silicon Valley that get a ton of credit uh, I don't think Steve gets anywhere near the credit relative to the the value he's creating for entrepreneurs hmm. I didn't know any of that yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, interesting. Okay. <laughs> um, in terms of monetization, so you guys are starting to do some stuff which is making money now in terms of jobs and some other bits and pieces. But is are you is AngelList basically self funded? Uh, no, we actually have angel investors, <laughs> um, which wouldn't be hard. I mean, we didn't actually ever set out to actively raise money, um, but people wrote us a bunch of checks, so we've been living off that. Um, I, I'm not worried about funding. Um, can always fund it myself. We have lots of people, uh, you know, in the AngelList community who want to fund AngelList. Um, it's a pretty low-cost operation, um, and if we want to be profitable, I think we could start monetizing talent right away and be profitable. But it's no rush. Mm. Um, I'm curious as to your thoughts on uh, f scientific funding. Um, you you must have thought about it given what you're doing. Yeah, I think it's fascinating. I mean, there's a lot of it going on now with uh, companies like GiveForward and Rally and so on are uh, starting to lead to medical funding. Um, so what you're happening, what you're seeing happen is uh, people who might have uh, you know a, a disease that's not like you know large population disease or big pharma is not going to address it, um, they can pool together to contribute the money for a uh, for a cure. Um, I think there's also a company called Microriza that just came out that uh, is also doing some scientific funding, uh, like funding science uh, research and experiments and projects. I think it's a great idea, and uh, I think we're going to see a lot more of it. Uh, people think that the government should fund all these things, and that's how it always worked, but that's not true. Uh, what people don't realize is the U.S. government actually didn't start funding scientific research until 1940, uh, and it was considered verboten to do so before then. Um, and since the U.S. government started funding scientific research, I would argue most of it has just been highly misallocated or politicized because it's not like the GDP growth rate has gone up anymore or R&D productivity has gone up anymore um, because the principal agent problem, the agents misallocate the capital. Um, so I think the grassroots ground-up scientific funding will be far more interesting. Imagine that you, could, you, know, you have some rare disease, some rare genetic issue, um, and you and 10,000 other people band up to, to fund it and fund some researchers on it. The researcher is more likely to have a passion for it um, or, and background in it to, to be credible. Um, and then you as the investor are going to hold that researcher far more accountable uh, and care a lot more about results rather than just about uh, you know publishing credentials uh, than uh, a government agent would who was spending the money on your behalf. Um, so I think that's a very rich area. I think we're going to see a ton of innovation. I think humanity will be better off. 
On the other side, though, I think the FDA is going to quash a lot of the outcome, <laughs> which is unfortunate, because <laughs> it takes 10, 12 years to get through the FDA, and you got to spend a billion dollars you know, to get that done. And that's a nice little regulated monopoly for the, for the pharmas, um, but it's not good for the individuals. But I think what you're going to see is the individuals will sort of team up with these micro-funding models, uh, and then also maybe volunteer to be the test subjects for the, the first batch of drugs. But the regulatory side of it's going to be really difficult. I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of the best innovation takes place outside of the U.S. and the European Union for those reasons. We're, we're mutual fans of um, Taleb and his book Anti-Fragile, and in there he talks about a lot of research being done at Soviet Harvard. Um, and my suspicion is that some of the research from the right or, or libertarian uh, may end up getting done through these sorts of channels too because they may, may not be fundable through conventional channels. Yeah, yeah, Taleb's an interesting character. Uh, he's sort of one of my few living heroes, uh, not, not because I believe in everything he says and I disagree with a lot of what he says, but because he's truly an original thinker from the ground up. Um, and he will not be silenced. <laughs> he will say whatever's on his mind. And so in that sense, I think he is a, uh, a really good role model. Not, not in the sense you should believe what he says. You should figure it out yourself. But you should be as outspoken, as passionate, and as critical and, and think everything yourself from the ground up. Um, uh, you know, the, the, one, one thing I really like about uh, characters like Nassim is they don't take their beliefs in bundles. You can't easily characterize them into any political philosophy. Um, and so they're, they have a, a reason, explanation for everything they believe. Um, he had a, unfortunately, for some bizarre reason, he posts his thoughts on Facebook, which it's sort of in a dark ghetto, you know, he should have a blog or something of the sort. But right. anyway, that, that being aside, uh, I do subscribe to his, the RSS feed of his Facebook posts. And he had a really good um, one that he put up a, a couple of months back that I thought was a good way to live by, where he said, try and maximize, um, you know, honor. Uh, try and maximize your self-esteem. So whenever you're faced with a difficult decision with two sides of it, just which one are you going to look back, uh, you know, a year later and say, that was a virtuous outcome. I'm an honorable person for having done it that way. If you maximize that, you're going to find yourself making a lot more of the right decisions, even if in the short term they're painful and economically bad for you. Um, so I really enjoy his writings. I, I hope to meet him sometime, although to be, uh, to be honest, I'm a little afraid to. Cause I, you know, he's one of the few intellects out there that I, I, I'm not sure I've read across swords with yet. <laughs> yeah, he's, I, I actually saw him at a book signing, and he was, he was mildly scary when I was there. Um, yeah, he's a formidable <laughs> character. Yeah, no, he, uh, and he is. Um, and, you know, he's, he's tough. And he, but, you know, he's, he's even managed to have an, a whole op-ed in the New York Times written about him being very difficult. I don't know if you saw that. Yeah, there's a contemporary of his, uh, Arthur Devaney, who was a professor uh, of economics, um, and who uh, basically spawned the whole science of evolutionary fitness, which has now blossomed into paleo. Um, and art doesn't get enough credit there, but he's a brilliant guy, uh, and he's in his mid-70s and fit as a fiddle. Um, and I had the honor to meet Art a few times, and he's another formidable intellect. And I know that he and Nassim have interacted a lot. I mean, the, the fact that these kinds of giants walk the earth around us is pretty amazing. Um, so. I agree. It really, it really is. Um... Okay. Uh, is there anything else you want to cover before we wrap up? No. Uh, I think this has been great. It's a good discussion. Thank you for uh, being provocative. <laughs> awesome, Naval. Thanks very much. <laughs>